This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When I recollect that at 14 years old, the whole care and direction of myself was thrown on myself entirely without a relation or friend qualified to advise or guide me, and recollect the various sorts of bad company with which I associated from time to time, I am astonished I did not turn off with some of them and become as worthless to society as they were. I had the good fortune to become acquainted very early with some characters of very high standing and to feel the incessant wish that I could ever become what they were. Though there was likely no way for him to know it in his early years, ultimately Thomas Jefferson would come to have a more prominent standing in American history than any of the people who served as models for him. As we shall come to see in this, our third series on the presidencies of the United States. I bid you a warm welcome to the beginning of this journey, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive into the pre-presidency of Jefferson, I did want to take care of a little housekeeping. First and foremost, thanks so much to Chris Flynn of the Number 10 Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. As a nod to the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., as well as to highlight this great new addition to the podcasting world, I invited Chris to record this episode's quote. Along similar lines of this podcast, Chris is looking at the office of the British Prime Minister and how the individuals who have held that office have shaped and reshaped the office, the nation, and the world. The Number 10 podcast can be found on most standard podcatchers, or a link to his podcast can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, as well as on my social media. Look for me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram as Presidencies Podcast, all one word. The website is also where you can go to find the episode guides for the two previous series on the presidencies of George Washington and John Adams, as well as ways that you can help support the podcast. I couldn't have gotten to this point without so many amazing people listening, sharing information on social media, rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and sending books on the wish list I've set up to help to ensure that I'm able to bring to bear the best sources possible in this examination of presidential history. However you choose to support the podcast, please know that I greatly appreciate each and every one of you. One more item of note before we get started. As I stated in the pre-presidency episodes for Washington and Adams, this is not intended to be an all-inclusive biography of Jefferson. For that, I would recommend numerous books, including Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf's Most Blessed of the Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson and the Empire of the Imagination, John Meacham's Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, Noble Cunningham's In Pursuit of Reason, The Life of Thomas Jefferson, or if you're feeling really adventurous, Dumas Malone's six-volume series, Jefferson and His Time. This isn't to say with naming these four that there aren't other great Jefferson biographies out there. Believe me, there are plenty. However, these have thus far proven to be invaluable resources and are the ones with which I'm most familiar. In terms of the podcast, these pre-presidency episodes are intended to give you an understanding of Jefferson's character and rise to prominence, the building blocks, so to speak, of his presidency. If I omit or only briefly touch on a certain part of his life, 
It's not that it's not interesting, but that I think it's not critical for understanding his presidency. I'll try to note major places where I do this, but just know that the focus, as always in this podcast, is on the presidency, not just the individual. Where we have to address the individual, though, I should also note that Jefferson was not quite so forthcoming about his internal deliberations as Adams. While we have a great deal of written material from Jefferson, he was generally more guarded in terms of what he revealed on paper than John and Abigail Adams. I'll bring to you what insight he provides about his thought process, as well as contemporary external observations as always. But I'll also indicate where you should bring out those grains of salt, as I make an educated guess or inference based on the existing material. History is all about trying to understand individuals who lived in times different from those of the present. But though we don't always have all the answers we would like, our work is to understand what we can based on the information we do have and be open to new information coming in the future that may expand our understanding. Jefferson in particular is a complex figure that people over the ages have tried to understand. But I feel it important to note that there's a reason that he has been compared to the Sphinx. That being said, without further ado, let's get ourselves back to 18th century Virginia. Whereas many colonial families could trace their lineage back numerous generations, it seems that there is a bit more uncertainty about Jefferson's lineage on his father's side, though Jefferson's can be found in Virginia as early as 1612. We do know for certain that his paternal great-grandfather and grandfather were also named Thomas Jefferson and were rather well-to-do planners who were on the rise in Virginia society. On his mother's side, he was able to trace his lineage to, quote, many of the most distinguished families in the English and Scotch peerage, and with royalty itself. Her family, the Randolphs, had been in Virginia since 1642, but moved back and forth between Virginia and Britain. His mother Jane had been born in London in 1721, while his father Peter had been born in Virginia in Chesterfield County in 1708. As is a common case with the mothers of the early presidents, we know little about Jane from the primary documents left by her son. As noted by Jefferson biographer John Meacham, a fire in 1770 destroyed their correspondence to that point, quote, and Jefferson apparently destroyed any subsequent correspondence. Though other biographers have speculated that they were estranged, Meacham points out that this was not necessarily the case. Indeed, as we know from Martha Washington destroying her correspondence with her husband upon his death, Strong affection may have driven him to the move. As it stands, much more is known about Peter Jefferson. Peter continued climbing the social ladder following the example of his father and grandfather, and Jefferson would say approvingly that though, quote, my father's education had been quite neglected, being a strong mind, sound judgment, and eager after information, he read much and improved himself. During his life, Peter would not only become a colonel of the militia and a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, he would also partner with a professor from the College of William and Mary to draft, quote, the first authoritative map of Virginia and ran the boundary line between Virginia and North Carolina. He and Jane would marry in 1739, and as, quote, an enterprising young planner, he brought his young wife and their two daughters to a site that, quote, overlooks the Rivanna River and where, quote, on any clear day, the distant Blue Ridge can be seen through a gap in the Southwest Mountains. As described by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, this estate which Peter would name Shadwell was, quote, on the fringe of Western settlement. It was here in, quote, a simple wooden house that Thomas Jefferson, Peter and Jane's third child and first son, was born on April 13, 1743. 
Though much has been made of Jefferson having been born on this quote-unquote western frontier and how it influenced his future interest in westward expansion, it must be noted that Jefferson's memories of his formative years did not begin at Shadwell. Rather, when he was two or three, the family moved to Tuckahoe, the estate of Jane's recently deceased cousin, William Randolph. Tuckahoe was 50 miles to the east of Shadwell and closer to what would become Richmond, Virginia. Randolph had asked Peter to move there in the event of his demise and raise his three children. So Peter brought his family to Tuckahoe, where they would stay until Thomas was nine or ten years old. As noted by John Meacham, Thomas, quote, grew up as the eldest son of a prosperous, cultured, and sophisticated family. They dined with silver, danced with grace, entertained constantly. These early years at Tuckahoe would leave an impression on him. Meacham attributes his time at Tuckahoe as the possible source, quote, of the adult Jefferson's dislike of personal confrontation. Despite his role in Virginia society, Peter Jefferson was merely a caretaker of Tuckahoe, and he and his family were guests on that plantation. Thomas Mann Randolph was the true heir. Being only two years older than Thomas Jefferson, there was no way that the young Randolph could manage the plantation at that time. As Meacham brainstorms, quote, whether such distinctions manifested themselves when the children were so young is unknowable. But Jefferson emerged from his childhood devoted to avoiding conflict at just about any cost. It is possible his years at Tuckahoe set him on a path toward favoring comity over controversy in face-to-face relations. Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf credit this time at Tuckahoe as formulating an idea of and a longing for home that was key to Jefferson's personality throughout his life. As they wrote, for Jefferson, home was, quote, a fixed place in a sentimental geography formed from the melded associations of people, places, and events. And they felt that it may very well have started from spending formative years of his boyhood, quote, in a place that was home, but not really home. Another key component to life on Tuckahoe would make an impression on the young Thomas, for it was at Tuckahoe that he would first witness the system of slavery as perpetuated by his father in his management of the plantation. John Meacham, in his research on Jefferson, cites Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, written decades later, as providing insight into the impression made on the young Thomas when he came to understand how enslavement worked on the plantation. The selection is from Query 18 of the work, which is titled Manners, and responds to the question of, quote, the particular customs and manners that may happen to be received in that state of Virginia. In it, Jefferson writes, quote, There must doubtless be an unhappy influence on the manners of our people produced by the existence of slavery among us. The whole commerce between master and slave is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part, and degrading submissions on the other. Our children see this and learn to imitate it, for man is an imitative animal. This quality is the germ of all education in him. From his cradle to his grave, he is learning to do what he sees others do. If a parent could find no motive, either in his philanthropy or his self-love, for restraining the intemperance of passion towards his slave, it should always be a sufficient one that his child is present. But generally, it is not sufficient. The parent storms, the child looks on, catches the liniments of wrath, puts on the same airs in the circle of smaller slaves, gives a loose to his worst of passions, and thus nursed, educated, and daily exercised in tyranny, 
cannot but be stamped by it with odious peculiarities. One can only imagine from that description what Thomas saw his father do to the people he enslaved, and further, how much of that Thomas carried forward as he grew up. Jefferson's relationship to and ultimate acceptance of slavery is critical to understanding many aspects of his life and his presidency. When the Jefferson family moved back to Shadwell in 1752, Thomas was sent off to study with the Reverend William Douglas, the headmaster of Aladdin School in Virginia, and would only return home on holidays. His home life would be further shaken up a few years later when his father passed away in 1757. As reflected in the opening quote, this loss of such a key figure in his life at an early age motivated Thomas to push forward in his learning so that he could find his path in life sooner rather than later. The first surviving letter that we have from Jefferson is when he, at the age of 16, asked permission from one of the executors of his father's estate to go to, quote-unquote, the college, which in the colony of Virginia at the time was the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg. It was the only college in the colony at the time, with the other most viable option for schooling being across the Atlantic and England, an option which many more planners were choosing for their children at the time. Thomas, who would later be known for his love of learning and his desire for tranquility, was entering an institution of higher education, quote, embroiled in controversy with the local political authorities. The details are beyond our scope, but as Dumas Malone notes, quote, the scandals and confusion which the youth, i.e. Jefferson, observed in his first year must have made an impression on so sensitive a mind. Also to make an impression on Jefferson was the fact that, as noted by Malone, This was likely the largest town he had seen thus far in his life and was his first exposure to the colonial government. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Williamsburg at that time was populated by around 1,500 people and was easily walkable for its residents. From the college, students could see the Colonial Capitol building down the street nearly a mile away, and many of the leading men of the colony, as well as its future leaders, would be walking the same streets and frequenting the same coffee house and theater as the young Jefferson. He would have occasion to meet many people of power and influence, including, but not limited to, the governor. Of all of his experiences in the city during his time at William & Mary, most important to Jefferson's professional development at this period in his life was his studies under William Small, the professor of natural philosophy. Small influenced the young man not just through his direct intervention through lectures and daily conversations, but also by introducing him to the noted lawyer, George Wythe. And when Jefferson completed his studies at the college in 1762, he would move into a study of law under Wythe's tutelage. George Wythe at this time was in his mid-30s, and as described by Malone, quote, if not yet the first at the bar of the general court, he, i.e. Wythe, was already one of its most distinguished members. Over the next five years, Wythe would help Jefferson not only to learn the law, but also build and expand his connections with the colonial leaders. As noted by Noble Cunningham, during this time in his life, quote, Jefferson was often in the Capitol to listen to the debates, and also, as a student of law, 
to observe the proceedings of the general court. He would be on hand to hear the speeches of such noted Virginians as Patrick Henry and Edmund Pendleton. The former in particular made an impression on Jefferson, and he would continue throughout his life to recall his hearing Henry's passionate response to the Stamp Act on May 30, 1765. A year later, Jefferson would expand his view of the world even further with a two-month trip outside of Virginia to visit Annapolis, Maryland, Philadelphia, and New York City. This trip served numerous purposes, as noted by Cunningham. In Annapolis, he watched the Maryland colonial legislature in session, giving him a perspective beyond that of what he had seen in Williamsburg. In Philadelphia, he would be inoculated against smallpox. Again, from Cunningham, quote, In a sense, the trip marked his transition from a student to a man of an ever-widening world. This didn't mean that he had left his home in Albemarle County behind, however. Indeed, in addition to marking his first voyage outside of the colony of his birth, 1766 would see Jefferson write his first entry in what would become his extensive garden book, with his first entry noting the, quote, purple hyacinth growing at Shadwell. As noted by Malone, Jefferson spent, quote, considerable stretches at Shadwell during his legal training, but this time would be spent reading, and he would return to Wythe's brick house in Williamsburg for guidance and instructions on his training. Despite his desire to venture forth in the world, as he had expressed to a number of associates during his early days, Jefferson would start his career in public service by working in 1765 to raise private capital to remove rocks below Milton Falls to make the Rivanna River, that river that ran through Albemarle County, more navigable for farmers to bring their produce to sell. He would be commended by the Colonial Assembly for this, quote, laudable and useful work and Jefferson's efforts inspired them to approve similar work on the James and Chickahominy Rivers. The fact that he had time to take up this endeavor while studying law with Wythe tells us just how unconventional Jefferson's legal training was. Often, students apprenticed to lawyers at the time were put to work tending to the, quote, burden of office business. But as noted by Malone, quote, it is unlikely that Jefferson was ever an apprentice in any strict sense or that Wythe ever wanted him to be one. This did not mean that the training wasn't rigorous as Jefferson threw himself into his studies, which would ultimately be, quote, both deep and broad. In this, Wythe was a great encouragement and guide, though, quote, despite his deserved reputation, Wythe's intellectual interests were not so broad as his distinguished pupils. A key part of Jefferson's training in this time was, as described by Meacham, quote, in the subtle skills of engaging others, chiefly by offering people that which they value most, an attentive audience to listen to their own visions and views. Jefferson would engage socially not just in Williamsburg, but since Shadwell was a convenient stopping point on the way to and from the colonial capital, he would entertain guests ranging from Virginia Gentry to the Cherokee leader Ontoset. He would also work to increase the public discourse in 1766 by working to bring a publisher from Maryland to Williamsburg to found a second newspaper for the colony. Jefferson would recall later that, quote, Till the beginning of our revolutionary dispute, we had but one press, and that having the whole business of the government and no competitor for public favor, nothing disagreeable to the governor could be got into it. As regular listeners to our podcast know, Though this was the first, it certainly wouldn't be the last time that Jefferson would help to set up an opposition press. In 1767, the young man was finally at the point where George Wythe presented him before the general court in Williamsburg to petition for admission to practice law, 
and in February 1767, Thomas Jefferson took on his first client. As described by Cunningham, quote, As a young lawyer, Jefferson was better known for thorough preparation than for courtroom oratory. Edmund Randolph described him as, quote, an impressive speaker who fixed the attention. Meacham, in his biography of Jefferson, describes him, quote, as a bright, enthusiastic, and intellectually curious lawyer. His practice was eclectic. His caseload included everything from one case involving, quote, the theft of a bottle of whiskey and a shirt, to another in which Jefferson represented a multiracial man who sued for his freedom under the argument that the law under which his grandmother had been enslaved until age 31 did not apply to her descendants. He lost the latter case, by the way. Though based at Shadwell, his legal practice would take him across the colony. Despite the responsibilities of his profession and increasing role in managing Shadwell, Jefferson found time to pursue other interests, one of which being his pursuit of Betsy Walker, the wife of his friend and neighbor John Walker. While John was on a trip to New York in 1768, Thomas traveled often to Belvoir, the Walker plantation, and tried to all accounts unsuccessfully to take advantage of the situation and of Betsy. This despite the fact that John had not just trusted Jefferson with checking in on his wife, but had written him into his will as an executor in case something should happen to him on the journey. Even after her husband's return, Betsy would have to endure Jefferson's unwanted advances until 1779. And yes, for those who have read ahead, Jefferson will marry in 1772, which means that not only was he pursuing a married woman, but he also wanted to cheat on his own wife after their marriage. It would be almost 20 years later before Betsy told John about it, and nearly a decade more would pass before Walker would write the details down in a letter to Lighthorse Harry Lee. As this happened during Jefferson's presidency, we'll save this to discuss at a later date, but I should note that Jefferson confirmed the account, and, as he wrote to his Secretary of the Navy in 1805 of his advances towards Betsy, quote, I acknowledge its incorrectness. While some question whether a president's personal life should be brought into a discussion of their presidency, as we've seen in our past series, the professional and the personal often mix, and in Jefferson's case, his personal life would be used by his opponents to attack him as president. Again, we'll get to all of that before too long. His other pursuit at the time was politics. Jefferson would stand for election to the Virginia House of Burgesses in December 1768 against two opponents who had been members of the previous colonial assembly. Albemarle County was entitled to elect two delegates, and they ended up choosing one of the incumbents as well as Thomas Jefferson. As Malone points out, quote, early initiation into public affairs was not uncommon in the province. But his, i.e. Jefferson's, election at the age of 25 to a position which his father had attained only in the ripeness of his years was a tribute to him, nevertheless. Though the body he was entering into would end up being the largest legislature he would ever participate in with 114 members, Jefferson was familiar with many of his fellow delegates and, in particular, with the leaders of the House of Burgesses. It was likely at his first session of the colonial legislature that Jefferson first met a man who would play a large role in his career on down the line, a planner from Northern Virginia named George Washington, though it seems that they would not know one another well for quite some time. Indeed, there was little time to make new acquaintances, as there was much to do. 
The legislature of Massachusetts Bay had sent a circular letter to the other colonial legislatures urging them to act to oppose the Townsend duties. And on the ninth day of the session of the House of Burgesses, they unanimously passed resolves, quote, declaring that they, not the British Parliament, had the right to levy taxes on the colony. They also asserted the right of petition to the king and the lawfulness of procuring the concurrence of the other colonies. The next day, the royal governor dissolved the House of Burgesses. Jefferson would then sign on to Washington's proposed non-importation association that we discussed way back in episode 1.02. Even thus early on in his public career, Jefferson was setting himself firmly on the side of the defense of the rights of colonials over the perceived encroachment of the British government. It was around this time that Jefferson established two other pillars in his life. Jefferson had had his eye on a small mountain on the other side of the Ravenna River from Shadwell that he had started to graft cherry trees on, and a month after his 25th birthday, he made arrangements to level the top of the mountain in order to build a home on it. He even had a name for this new building site. From the Italian for Little Mountain, he decided that his new home would be called Monticello. While his efforts to design and redesign Monticello would fill numerous episodes and this project would become a passion that would carry through a large portion of his life, I mention it here to get back to this idea of home and the role that this place would serve in his public image. The home would not be complete without a family, however, and around the same time that he moved to the first outbuilding at Monticello, he would begin courting Martha Wales Skelton. As Malone explains, quote, the surviving descriptions of her are meager. The tradition is that her figure was slight, though well-formed, that she had large hazel eyes and luxuriant auburn hair. She was not only a pretty lady, but an accomplished one in the customary ways, and her love for music was a special bond with Thomas. Martha was the oldest daughter of John Wales, an immigrant from England who, quote, had acquired a large legal practice in Virginia, as well as, quote, a large landed estate. Martha had been married to Bathurst Skelton, but their married life was a short one, as Bathurst passed away soon after, but not before Martha gave birth to a son named John. Sadly, John would die at the age of three while Thomas and Martha were courting in the summer of 1771. As the year went on, their relationship progressed to an engagement, and on Christmas Eve, Jefferson set out for Monticello for his nuptials with Jupiter, one of the enslaved individuals who Jefferson had serving him. He and Martha were wed on January 1st, 1772, and they began their journey back to Monticello mid-month, arriving at the end of the month to find that, quote, the ground was covered with three feet of snow. The story is that they arrived late at night and proceeded eight miles over a mountain road on horseback, only to find that the fires were out and the servants were all in bed. Despite the conditions being more rustic than she was accustomed, it seems that the first months of marriage for Thomas and Martha were happy ones, as Jefferson skipped the February session of the House of Burgesses and did not leave his new bride's side to travel to Williamsburg and chill the spring. Their first child, a daughter named Martha, was born on September 27th at Monticello. As Jefferson was settling into domestic bliss, the relations between Virginia and Great Britain continued to deteriorate. With the Boston Tea Party and the order to close the Port of Boston in 1774, the Virginia House of Burgesses responded in May by passing a resolution calling for, quote, a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer to inspire us with firmness in support of our rights and to turn the hearts of the King and Parliament to moderation and justice. 
After the assembly was dissolved, the Burgesses, including Jefferson, gathered at the Raleigh Tavern, where he and 88 other members, quote, signed an association to refrain from using tea and to boycott most other commodities sold by the East India Company, as well as to come to an agreement that, quote, an attack made on one of our sister colonies to compel submission to arbitrary taxes is an attack made on all British America. After working with the Virginia Committee of Correspondence and reaching an agreement with some of the other Burgesses to call for a convention in Williamsburg beginning on August 1st, Jefferson returned to Monticello where he took up his pen. In addition to drafting resolutions which were, quote, adopted by the freeholders of Albemarle County on July 26, 1774, Jefferson also worked on a series of resolutions for the August Convention, as well as a series of instructions for Virginia's delegates to the Continental Congress, set to begin in September in Philadelphia. As he fell ill and was unable to attend the convention, Jefferson sent copies of his work to Patrick Henry and Peyton Randolph. Neither man was much help to Jefferson's cause, though, as neither offered the drafts to the convention. Despite this, members of the convention did at least get one of the copies and arranged for it to be published as, quote, a summary view of the rights of British America. The author was listed simply as, quote, a native and member of the House of Burgesses, and it was soon republished in Philadelphia and London. As described by Cunningham, quote, a summary view was indeed a bold statement. Although too extreme for 1774, it would not long be so regarded. In addition to a broad statement of principles, Jefferson presented a detailed enumeration of American grievances against both Parliament and the Crown. It would, quote, propel Jefferson into the front ranks of the champions of American rights. It's here that we'll leave Mr. Jefferson for now, but I hope you'll join me for the next episode, in which we'll explore his time during the Revolution and beyond, leading up to the beginning of his tenure at the President's House. As always, if you have any questions or comments, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Sources used in this episode, as well as links to Chris's podcast, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you've noticed our new intro music, it is Variations on Yankee Doodle by violinist Carrie Ripkoff. A link to the full audio is available on the website as well. Thanks so much again to Chris for providing the intro quote for this episode. To all of you who have taken the time to rate and review the podcast, as well as share information about it with others, and most especially, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.